So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, December the 22nd. That's right. The last Friday before Christmas. So this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers episode number 237. I'm Frederick Dunn and this is the way to be. So I'm really glad that you're here. I'm here. We're all here. The opening sequences, by the way, were filmed during the past week and uh, we had a nice big snowstorm, more than a foot of snow out where I live. And then it's all going to melt away. We're going to talk about that at the very end. But uh, things are about to take a turn for the worse if you really want a white Christmas. Right now, I still have snow everywhere. What's temperature outside, you may be wondering? 33 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 1 degree Celsius. 1.1 mile per hour wind, so it's nice and calm. Easy going on the bees that are now in a state of torpor, which is not hibernation. It's just a state of lower metabolism, and they're all clustered together, and they're doing great. 90% relative humidity, rain in the forecast, chance of rain. And for Christmas Day, which comes up on Monday, it's going to be 55 degrees Fahrenheit here. That's 13 Celsius. So coming up on Monday, you're actually probably going to have your best bee day coming. We'll talk about that at the end too. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description and you'll see all the topics in order. If you want to know how to submit your own question to be considered for the next Friday Q&A, please uh, follow the link which is down in the description or go to the website thewaytobe.org and click on the page titled The Way to Be. There's a form. You can fill it out and submit your idea. It doesn't even have to be a question. You might have just uh, some new information to share, something that you think would be cool for everybody else to know about. That's what I'm talking about right there. So... The topics we're discussing today were submitted during the past week. Last Friday, we had interviews instead of the Q&A. So uh, some people, you know, didn't mind that, but others definitely wanted a straight up Q&A. So that's what we're doing today. And the last Friday of the month will be a live Q&A. What that means is it'll be just like this. Same format. The only difference is you can join us live. So from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, United States, it will be a live Q&A. So I'll go through the topics that were submitted during the previous week and I'll talk about my responses. But the good news is there'll be a little list, a chat group on the right hand side so you can say hello to each other and submit questions so we can talk in real time. So that's kind of fun and we're going to do that the last Friday of every month. So let's get started with today's. The first question comes from George Garcia. It says, I had a question about installing foundation in a brood box, it's winter in LA, and our nectar flow kicks in mid-February. In my immediate area, and without breaking up the cluster, is it better to place empty wax foundation below or above the existing brood foundation? What is the rationale? And the current configuration is a single deep box, eight frames. So you must be starting to talk about a Langstroth box, deep eight frame. So um, there are some people that under super. I'm not one of them. Reason is you've got a brood box, you're going into spring and you're gonna add frames. First of all, we wanna make sure that the frames that you currently have, so the eight frame deep, if you've got a 10 frame deep, uh, you wanna make sure that they're mostly full. Don't add additional boxes until those things are 80%. Eight out of 10 frames, six out of eight frames, whatever you have, right? And so then when they get to the point of expansion, it's best to super directly above them. And if you've got foundation that you're hoping that they'll draw out, 
put that directly above the current brood nest. And that's because you'll have the greatest warmth there. They'll be encouraged to draw out those frames. And uh, that's it. Because often with some of these hive configurations with the Langstroth, the number one frame, number 10 frame, and if it's an eight, the number one and number eight position, sometimes don't even get fully drawn out on the outboard side. So the center frames get worked first. And the reason for that is there's warmth that rises from the cluster. And so depending on your hive configuration, hopefully, if you've been watching me for a while, you'll insulate your inner cover. And some people call that a winter configuration. I personally highly recommend you leave your insulation on summer and winter, no different. Uh, your bees need warmth to work the wax. So they either warm it themselves or uh, environmentally, it's warm enough for them to work the wax. So when we get temps into the high 70s, low 80s, that's warm enough for comb production. And, uh, and of course, whatever is directly above the brood gets their attention first because that's where they're going to want to put resources. So they instinctively want to develop that there. So that's what I say. Put it directly above your brood, not below, and then off you go. Question number two comes from Derek. And it doesn't say where Derek's from, but it says, Do you use apiary-specific management software to help keep records for your apiary? And if so... Could you recommend a good one? Oh yeah, it's from Newcastle, Pennsylvania. All right, so I've experimented, uh, big shocker. Some people reach out to me and want me to use their software and guess what? There's a lot of it out there. So for those of you with smartphones, most of you have that or a tablet that you take out with you. You might be getting one for Christmas, who knows? But uh, I have experimented and I did like one in particular called Beekeep Pal, B-E-E-K-E-E-P-P-A-L. And it's an app, so you look it up through your Google Play or whatever you use. And uh, it's pretty good for a lot of reasons. One is uh, you are keeping inventory of uh, the equipment that you have. So you take photographs with it, which get assigned to your entries. It also creates a nice history and helps you calculate your costs and uh, what your income is. So you can tell, are you doing well as a beekeeper or are you taking a loss? This information comes in pretty darn valuable if you're filing taxes at the end of the year and you have write-offs for all of your losses or your expenses, fondants that you buy, sugar that you buy, flowers that you plant. All these things are potential tax write-offs too. So when you're thinking about software for tracking your bee, your apiary, and your bee management, um, those that are established that have the expenditures and things like that already sorted for you, that's kind of good. Now I'm guilty of uh, not using it. And that's because I've gone to a three ring binder and uh, I like to sit out there, you know, with a cup of coffee and take notes on the things that I've done either that day or that week. Uh, so I don't actively uh, make entries in my log at the time that I'm working my hives. So I've kind of moved away from that. Now keep in mind that I don't have a lot of beehives. So those of you who are thinking about maybe going into a sideline and uh, making real money. By the way, the Bee Informed Partnership considers people sideline beekeepers here in the United States. If you have up to and including 500 hives, you're a sideliner. So a backyard keeper would be from zero to 50 hives. So you'd be considered a hobbyist. And then beyond 500, that's commercial scale. So 
That's a lot of hives. So obviously you would need to look into, you know, some kind of program that's designed just for beekeepers. Even the cost of your insurance, if you have to pay for insurance related to beekeeping, that's in the program. One of the reasons I liked uh, Beekeep Pal is because when I first got it, when it first started out, you know, they listed Langstroth, Lands, Horizontal Hives. Um, if there was a different hive configuration that wasn't already in the index, you could let them know and they would add it. So they're pretty workable, they're pretty responsive. So what I'm gonna guess ask people to do today, if you have uh, you know some kind of software that you're using and you've used it for a couple of years or a few seasons and you're impressed by it, please write the name of that software down in the uh, comments section of this video. And I think I'll go ahead and uh, we have an area called the community um, area on my YouTube channel, which is Frederick Dunn. And if you go there, the community tab will have a survey, I think. I'm gonna have people uh, write in or comment on, you know, which program, which app they like to use the most in the bee yard. And of course, the third or fourth response will be no app, good old paper. So the other thing is, if you want to know if I'm doing hive inspections and stuff, is there a pre-established document that I can start to fill out that's user-friendly? And there are, they're everywhere. So you can Google that uh, hive inspection uh, form, and then you'll find out that a lot of them are in public domain, which means you can download it, use it, print it, and have as many of those as you want, and then pop it right into your three ring binder. So there you go. Lots of options, but again, I'll just say, I've gone back to, I do take dictations. So I have that voice activated, little electronic voice recorder. Uh, so if there's something you're seeing, because if you're looking at a lot of hives, assign every hive a unique number, and then uh, start off each comment with the uh, number of the hive, date, weather conditions, time of day, and then the things that you observe. And these forms that are set up really help you out because they'll keep you from missing things, right? So brood present, egg sighted, things like that, hive strength, and so on. And then you'll get an assessment and you'll have a nice record year after year. But for me right now, if I'm using a digital app, it's Beekeep Pal. I think there's Hive Tracks. There's a whole bunch of other programs out there. So please, down in the comment section, let us know what you're using. I've gone to paper for the most part, because I like to draw pictures too, make sketches of what I'm seeing and flag stuff and so on. Three ring binders are cheap and your pens are in them and everything else. And you never, the batteries never run down and you don't depend on an internet connection. Although with these apps, they're installed on your phone and the photos are there too. And then you choose what you want to back up in the cloud. Question number three comes from Stephen Sexton. What are the frequencies involved? Now this is related to I put out two videos uh, last year that are recordings, audio recordings of the sounds made inside the hive. And I also had a very interesting interview regarding noises made inside the hives and how bees communicate, how they hear, how they pick up, respond to vibrations and sounds inside a hive. So when I put that out, a lot of people are commenting and saying that, uh, well, this is the key of C, this is C minor, this is G. And so, they're really trying to nail down exactly what the frequency is, what the resonance is inside a beehive. And uh, I'm always interested because those comments are very absolute. In other words, somebody holds a, 
a tuning instrument up to their speaker and uh, they'll see where it hovers and kind of like if you were tuning a guitar or a piano or something, it lets them know what key is being played. So this comment is, what are the frequencies involved? What are the volumes? In other words, volume we would say in sound, amplitude, right, too? And what are the range of sound, it says here? So here's the thing. Um, if you sit next to a beehive, and the whole purpose behind making that recording was that uh, it's inside the hive. And not only that, these noises are different throughout the year as well. So there are people, for example, that when they open a hive, they listen to the response from their bees and they go, ah, queenless colony. Listen to that. Ooh, there's a roar, when a little whoosh of that goes on when you open it. Queenless colony. So a lot of people will assign sounds to different conditions of the overall hive. But for the purposes of these recordings, I call them, it's more of a bee chorus than it is a single sound, a single resonance, right? Resonance and frequency. So, and that's because there are different things going on inside the beehive. There are things you hear in there that you would not hear out in, let's say, your garden while the bees were on flowers, right? This is an area of profound interest, by the way, because those who study flowers even realize that there, of course, when sound is made, it's a mechanical energy that passes through the air and then gets received by something that is sensitive to vibration, and then they can interpret that sound, right? So there are plants that even respond to the close proximity of a bee and their wing beats and then that frequency, which causes this plant to release or produce more nectar and make it available, where in the absence of these bees, they would not be producing the nectar at the same rate. So it's interesting, plants respond to the presence of animals. And so, and not all plants, of course, these are specific ones, but this just kind of lets you touch on how deep and complicated it can become, this response to sound. Well, sounds inside the hive uh, give a sense of well-being to some people that listen to it, that sit next to it. Dr. Leo Shirashkin, I know I bring him up all the time. He's a very holistic beekeeper. He has a beehive that's a horizontal configuration. I'm not even sure it might have multiple hives under it, but it's like a sauna. It has, uh, it's an enclosure that you get inside and it's designed for someone to be immersed in that environment without being in direct contact with the bees. So the bees are under you, their sounds resonate. So because you're in contact with this bench, if you lay down, then these vibrations are going into your body. So there's airborne and then there's conductive sound, which is mechanical through direct contact. So all of these things have an impact on the things that are in close proximity to them. So when people, so he has this hive, look him up. It's uh, horizontalhive.com and then look at the different uh, beehives that he has. He's a big, you know, promoter of the Lands Hive in particular, but he has this uh, hive sauna or whatever it is. I'm sure it's in there. Look at that because people actually are demonstrating improved sense of well-being and health and their baseline uh, vitals are improved in the close proximity to bees and in some cases just listening to the sounds of bees. So if you're a nervous, high-strung person suffering from PSD and things like that, they get all your vitals. They evaluate your stress levels. They see what your respiration rate is, what your heart rate is, what your blood pressure is, and then they put you in close proximity to honeybees 
and then see if this does not improve. And so it's measurable. That becomes a scientific evaluation. So this isn't just somebody sitting there and getting into a Zen moment, which meditation has proven to help people too. So there are a lot of things at play. And along with that, inside your hive, there are bees chewing and making cum. There are bees chewing the cappings off of their pupa cell. There are bees making new beeswax. There are bees grabbing each other and vibrating one another. There are bees grabbing onto queen cells and vibrating those sometimes. There are queens quacking and making their sounds. So it's more of a choral environment. In other words, like a chorus, not like the choral that would be in the Great Barrier Reef off of Australia. I mean, like there are so many different sounds coming through at the same time and they vary during the morning. You would have a different sound midday. There would be another sound, another overall tone to the hive. And then at nighttime, they're still working in there, but there again, different activities produce different sounds. So when somebody jumps out and says C plus G, G minor, whatever, you know, I don't know all the notes, but instead of assigning it a specific note, it is an overall din of noises that somehow bring comfort to a lot of people. But it's like these people that don't like nature or that do like nature, but say things like, I love nature. I just don't want to get any of it on me. So the people that want to commune with something that's alive, this is a great way to do it. And you can do it just with sound. So when it says, what are the volumes? Variable. What are the ranges of sound? Variable. It changes all the time. I don't know if you've ever heard bees warming up their thorax. They, it makes a high-pitched little noise. So even that activity of warming the thorax on a landing board or at the entrance of a hive because it's too cold when they get outside, they need to get their thorax up to around 80 degrees Fahrenheit to fly. And you hear them, and they don't even sound like they're in tune. So if this were a, you know, a orchestra or a symphonic band or something, and they want to do that concert C or whatever they do, uh, they're not in tune with each other. They're just making sounds that are similar. And eventually you begin to recognize what these noises are and what's going on inside the hive. So it's very, very interesting stuff. But I can't assign. Maybe you figured it out. Maybe you know there are labs that study it because they want to know why people feel better in the presence of these things. So there's something else called forest bathing, for example, which involves just getting away from the city, getting away from electronics, getting away from TV, your phone and everything else, and just being in the most natural environment you can find, avoiding everything man-made. You know, it becomes a stressor for me personally, seeking out a quiet, natural environment like that. There's always an ATV somewhere. There's always somebody that starts shooting their gun for no reason. They're not even target practicing because they're just shooting their gun as fast as they can, shooting as many rounds as they can. Or there'll be a snowmobile that goes through in the middle of winter. And then you get everything quiet and you think that you're going to record that. And then there's a jet that flies overhead. Or your neighbor just bought an ultralight and they fly that over and that thing's doing 20 miles an hour. So it takes forever to get out of your sound range. When you really try to find a spot where all you hear is nature, it's not as easy as you might think. So we'll move on from that, but seek it out. If you can make some kind of sound environment where all you hear would be birds chirping and things like that. Look up a book called The Sonic Bloom. Very interesting stuff too. 
Question number four. Question number four comes from Janine in New Franklin, Ohio. Is there an age at which the queen should be replaced? And if so, what is the best month of the bee season to replace her? So in Ohio, New Franklin. Um, here's the thing. We color code our queens. So this is a good benchmark, right? How many different colors are there? So there is a, a phrase that goes with it. Will you raise good bees? And the colors are white, yellow, red, green, and blue. So we have a five-year span, right? So that alone tells us that they're thinking you're never going to keep a queen past five years. Now, I know there are records. Somebody's going to probably write in the comment section that I know of a queen that lasted nine years. Well, I've had chickens go 12 years. You know what I mean? But uh, for if you are keeping healthy bees and you're trying to keep them in their prime, kind of, there are beekeepers that want you to requeen every single year before you go into winter. So if you're doing that, why even bother with the color-coded thorax, right? Coming up, 2024, the color is going to be green. So if you're looking for a gift for somebody, maybe you're going to get one of those nice green marker paint pens. And uh, Better Bee sells them. A lot of places sell them. I don't have mine here. I don't recommend buying the whole set for somebody. Buy the color that's coming up. And then, because you can end up, you know, your markers, they dry up and all kinds of stuff. So get the one that's coming up. So we're just coming out of red. We're going into green. So here's the thing, um, that's personal preference, but how do you assess whether or not your queen is doing well and even needs to be replaced? Well, that's gonna demonstrate itself in the brood pattern and uh, what kind of queen she is. In other words, is she suited to your area? Did she brood up and create frames full of brood just going into the end of October? That's not a good uh, queen for your area, for example, unless you really want to have to feed her. So my target for queens, and this is why my response is going to be somewhat variable and it's a personal choice. Um, I want bees that don't need a lot of my attention. In fact, I've often wondered, and I don't have the, the chutzpah or whatever to do it, but I would like to go hands off and not treat or feed anything in my entire apiary and just observe what happens as years go by. Now, then you get called out immediately for being an irresponsible beekeeper and, you know, some of your bees are going to get diseases and some of your bees are going to be overrun with varroa mites and things like that. So the hands-off approach would be culling out the ones that demonstrated poor health, culling out the ones that ended up being overrun with varroa mites and simply not treating and going until you end up with a core, starting out with, you know, 30 hives and ending up with two in 10 years. Now, that's an extreme example. But those that remain, in theory, would be stronger. And why don't you do it? What holds you back from doing that? Well, because I have people in every direction of me that keep bees that impact the colony health and longevity of my bees. So, can't do it. So now we keep track of them. We keep track of our queens. If the brood is healthy and the brood is strong and she's brooding up when you want her to and you have the kind of bees that you want. In other words, they get quiet when they're supposed to. They start to scale back when they're supposed to as fall enters and they perform well through dearth periods and the bees that they're producing have the traits and behaviors. Behavior is pretty high on my list too. Aside from health and well-being, I don't want bees that are going to attack me just because I happen to be out in the bee yard one day. So I'm looking at all of these things, and uh, so I replace a queen that has problems. Now, when's a good time to replace her? That's an important part of the question. So maybe late in the year you had a queen that wasn't your favorite, but too late to requeen her because you discovered that mid-October. 
And so requeening at that point, not a good time of year to do it. So the next part of the question is, when's the best time? Well, the best time is springtime. Springtime when every colony in your apiary is ramping up into high production because that means nutrition is at its best. And by nutrition, I don't mean what you've mixed up and put on your beehives. I mean the nutrition that comes from a diverse environment. So for the backyard beekeepers, springtime, things come into bloom. Fruits come into bloom early in the spring. Dandelions are kind of our indicator that other things are coming in. Salix discolor, so we're talking about pussy willow trees and things like that. All of these things uh, start to produce resources for your bees, and your bees, in concert with that, ramp up their production. So this is a time of supreme health and nutrition and all of your bees are vibrant. Plus the important part of this too is these are bees that are already in your geo zone that have already demonstrated good wintering. You know what their spring patterns are like. And if you're going to make splits, you make those from your strongest spring stock. And of course I'm saying that because this is what I do. If you want to do something different, Go ahead, but I'm trying to give you the parameters for why that works. And then I do walk away splits. So I make my queens that way. It's very easy and it reduces congestion in a hive that otherwise would become super populated. Some people want big, super populated hives. So here again, personal preference. I like small colonies. So then you'll pull uh, the existing queen from a colony that's looking strong and you'll create that mid stride in spring when all of your bees are doing great. You've got pollen coming into all the landing boards. You talk about a chorus of bee activity. And when you walk out in your bee yard, it sounds like every hive is swarming, but what you're really observing and listening to is high production. So that's the time to make a queen. It's never a good time. And this is why it kind of works against you because at times when there's a dearth and when your hives are stressed and the colonies are not producing very well, that's when you frequently end up queenless. And so that's when some people rush to make a new queen. And I suggest that you not do that unless you're buying in a queen from somewhere where you know it's in prime condition, right? But if you're in a dearth period, your bees are stressed and things like that, wait until times are plentiful again and that you've got this uh, nectar and pollen resource that's going on in your environment and that they're ramping up naturally in concert with the environment. That would be the time to make a new queen. So don't get you know pressed by the calendar on when you need a queen. It's when uh, the environment is providing for the health, nutrition, growth, and development of a new queen, without you having to supplement everything. So that's my that's my philosophy. Is uh, when the environment's providing what they need, that's the time to make a new queen. So that's it. And uh, how long do I keep them? I like to breed from queens that are two to three years old. So going into the third winter for me is when I would look, you know, really intensely at uh, replacing a queen. So three years is about the limit for me. And if she's doing really well and I just want to requeen for GP, I'll create a nucleus colony from the existing queen if she's never swarmed. If you have a queen that hasn't swarmed for two years, that's a pretty darn good queen for me. And uh, so creating a nuke from her, that's an insurance policy. I'm not going to just pull her out and kill her. I know some people just do that, but why not just give her a couple of frames of brood, put her in a nucleus hive, let them requeen, 
And then of course, if they fail that requeening process, uh, because then they're just gonna go from eggs, gonna create those queen cells, and then they're going to replace her unless you've discovered them. Kind of, let me backtrack a little bit. In the best case scenario, you're doing a hive inspection and you find out that you've got queen cells that are in production and they're like half done, right? Because that means your existing queen is still in there. You know she's good. You can see the brood pattern and everything else. It's a great time to pull her away and then let these finish themselves off because here's what's good about that. You take that queen out, you create a little nuke. That's your insurance policy, your resource nucleus hive. And for me, it's five frame nucleus hives, except for I do like the Apame seven frame nucleus hive bodies. So you set them over and let them start their own thing while they finish out these queen cells. One of the reasons that that's a good way to go is why are they producing queen cells? If they're swarm cells and these are not emergency queen cells, which would be what they would do if that queen were suddenly dead or gone or fails to lay, right? So we have normal swarm cells being built. There's going to be the biggest and healthiest ones. You can even narrow the field there. Look at those queen cells and save two or three of them. If they've made four or five, cut away the ones that have the least amount of work on them. In other words, the smoothest surface, the smallest queen cell, take that one off and take this one off and leave two or three that are in really good condition, that have lots of modeling on them, lots of reinforced beeswax around them, Workers are usually right on them, taking care of them. Those are probably going to be your most well-fed replacement queens. And why do I not take it down to just one? Because I'm all about insurance policies. Two is one, one is none. And uh, so I want to check back later and make sure that this colony is queen right. And if they're not, what do I do? Bring back the queen that I made my nucleus hive out of. Reinstall her, and I'm still queen right. So... How's that sound? It's fun for me, but keep in mind, I'm not a high production beekeeper. I have lots of time to tinker, check things out. But again, they're already demonstrating that they have the workforce they need. They're not queenless yet. And so it's not an emergency situation and they're producing new queen cells, which are standard swarm cells. Here in the Northeastern United States, the state of Pennsylvania, we have two swarm seasons. Now I understand in some parts of the country, Yep, spring is your swarm season and that's it after that. In fact, that's the big nectar flow and that's when they take honey off also. Here where I live, we have two cycles of that. So when you get into August and early September, we're in another swarm season and we're in high production and we're even in a honey uh, gathering season too, right? So we have two cycles of that. So seasonal and you know where you're located is going to dictate also when your bees are going to be producing the most. But there's one thing across the board, spring bees are going to be healthy and those are going to be, that's your best time to make a new queen. Okay, I beat that topic to death. Question number five comes from Rick. Unadilla, Nebraska, or is it Unadilla, Unadilla? Hmm, okay, so it says, hi Fred, how a person contact me wanting raw honey? They had a sick chicken. Have you ever heard of using raw honey to medicate chickens instead of using antibiotics? Okay, so we jumped right from either giving them honey or straight into antibiotics. So first of all, this is in the abstract because uh, we're talking about a chicken. I don't even know what the symptoms were. So, but beekeepers uh, who produce and sell honey and have raw honey in particular, you do get some funny stories through people that reach out and you know, if you're like me, because I'm a curious-minded person, I always want to know what's the honey for. 
especially if it's an emergency. I need some honey for my chicken. I need some for my iguana. I need some for my rosy need tarantula. It's not doing well and I heard it's going to help. So I try to find out what's wrong with your chicken and how are you gonna make it eat the raw honey? Because chickens are pretty selective. I mean, they're not very brainy. They're not the most cerebral uh, birds running around. So if they're sick, um, there are some concerns with feeding them raw honey. In other words, how are you going to get it, get the bird to eat it? They're going to drink lots of water. Uh, they eat lots of chicken feed. They're omnivores, so they eat insects and things like that, grass and so on. We know that the chickens, uh, if you keep a flock as I do, that um, you can feed them grubs. You can feed them drones and things like that if you're using that as part of your varroa control. You can feed Varroa to your chickens. So if you've got uh, drone brood, the green frames, and you pull it out and you uncap it a little bit to get your chicken started and you put that out there for them and they'll, they'll pick those out and eat it. I've never seen chickens go after honey, but I did look into it. So uh, I'm also a poultry technician. So that involves uh, inspecting chickens, looking for parasites, things like that, drawing blood, turning it in for testing and banding chickens to show that they've been uh, cleared, tested, health certificates, things like that, that we turn into the state vet. So I've never had, can't find a single instance where raw honey or any high sugar um, is going to benefit your chickens. There are some cases with brand new chicks um, where you give them electrolytes and things like that. So if you're trying to boost them and they're a little, they're a little um, anemic looking or they're not moving around very well, there are packets of electrolytes that get mixed with water and then of course fed to them. Uh, I suppose if the raw honey were mixed with water and it were the only water available that they would drink it, but there again, what's the health benefit? Couldn't find any. So for an adult chicken that's already unhealthy, that's having problems, you can actually give them sour crop. It can actually start to ferment in their crop, which already often has some fermentation going on in the first place, but we're gonna boost that with a bunch of sugar. Sugar can kick off bacteria and so on. So there are actually uh, examples of it being a detriment to your chickens, and I could find no examples of it being beneficial to your chickens. So, and I'm sure I already responded to this person, um, but I would like to know more about what the symptoms were from the bird. So if Rick knows more, share more. But uh, I'd like to know, it's these forums sometimes that uh, for chicken keepers, that you're gonna read some really weird recommendations and things that can benefit the birds and that should be done to benefit them. And it's kind of like with the bees. Um, your poultry that forages, for example, um, because a lot of bees or, or chickens are in pens and they're just fed a ration that's prepared. And then you'll hear about people creating their own things. Uh, one of the most interesting ones was that somebody said that they could keep their chickens producing eggs all winter long. And the secret was diet. In other words, the secret was giving them cracked corn, not just corn, but cracked corn because they would get more nutrients from that. And that makes them produce eggs all through the winter. And that is simply anti-science is the best I can say to that. And that's because chickens have a natural daylight cycle for egg production. And uh, when winter time and the days become shorter, 
chickens naturally back off in reproduction. That's instinct, that's nature. And so as the days get longer, you'll see egg production resume, but they actually reconstruct their reproductive system when they're in the off period. So forcing chickens to produce eggs all the time burns out your chickens, but it's definitely not related to giving them cracked corn, for example. So there's a lot of non-scientifically supported information out there. Uh, so I always would suggest that if somebody's being told, hey, give them raw honey and that's going to fix, you know, um, a stuck egg or egg bound, or if it's got, you know, if their waste material is looking foamy, give them raw honey. Now I'm not saying that's what you should do. I'm saying these are the kinds of things that people like to produce and come forward with holistic home remedies, and you'll find that the evidence is anecdotal and not really well grounded in what is occurring to that chicken when it comes to their um, natural cycling of food through their digestive system or egg production or respiratory systems and things like that. So um, go beyond that. I could find nothing that supports raw honey for chickens. I just decided to go into some other areas there too. I want to encourage you to seek out real biology-based responses for things like that. There's a really good book by Gail Domero, and it's called, this is for poultry people, it's called uh, The Chicken Health Handbook. Highly recommend. You keep chickens, get that book. And uh, if you know a chicken person that's just starting out, that should be on their shelf uh, because it's a fantastic diagnostic when it comes to things that could go wrong, common ailments for poultry. Question number six comes from Wayne from St. John, New Brunswick, Canada. New beekeeper this year, one hive from a walkaway split. Going into winter, I have three medium boxes full of bees, most of the 30 frames full of honey and pollen. As per your advice, I added hive live fondant patty above the inner cover. Now to the point. On November 16th of 2023, the bees were flying well. As I love to do, I stand to the side of the hive and just watch and observe most times with binoculars. I observed two different drones, one with an orange-brown abdomen and the other had a pure black abdomen. As I noticed the drones were being ejected, my mentor had removed his hive from my property three weeks earlier. His queen had a pure black abdomen. My queen has a golden-brown abdomen. In my inspections, I never did see any drone cells in my hive, but that's not to say drones did not arrive in my hive from the original split. So the question is, knowing drones are produced from an unfertilized egg and only carry 16 chromosome, chromosomes, all will all drones born of the same queen be genetically identical to one another? This is a great area and it's fun because uh, it's common to see a bunch of worker bees that are a bunch of different colors inside the same hive. And uh, when it comes to drones, and we'll see drones, especially the ones that really stick out. Um, someone once said that uh, all bees are the same color and it's only their hair that's a different color. Okay, that's not true. The actual exoskeleton of the bees, some of them are very light colored, a light amber, golden color, with or without hair. So it is the physical coloration of the bee and, of course, that combination of hair that covers their bodies. 
So when it comes to the worker bees, a queen produces, you know, a variety of different stock and that's because she has mated with a bunch of different drones on her mating flight, right? So there are sister queens and sister workers and half sister workers, right? So they've got, some of them have the same drone and queen parent for that egg production and others have a different drone and the same queen, of course. Now, when the queen produces eggs just for uh, drones, right, in the larger drone cells, she chooses not to fertilize the egg. So the egg, when it's in production going through the queen, um, there is something called the spermatheca. The spermatheca is where she has stored all the sperm from her day when she flew out and made it with all those drones. Now, if she does not release sperm to fertilize the egg on its way out, then it will only produce a drone. So when it does that, and this is a fun experiment, by the way, uh, if you happen to produce drones on drone frames as part of your inner integrated pest management system, if you are using the drones as magnets to get the varrodestructor mites to go to them so that you can remove them and keep them off of your worker bees, if you did not catch the interview that I had with Dr. Zachary Lamas, then I highly recommend you look at that because uh, he discovered in his studies that um, when it comes to varrodestructor mites, they're attracted to two-day-old drones and this led me to think that if we put frames of drones into a cage and it's a queen isolation cage uh, the queen can't get out of it but likewise drones that emerge can't get out of it either so you can actually take those green drone frames which are just drone brood and drone comb which is larger than worker comb and when you put that in that frame and close it up the workers get through to it so they can still attend to those developing drones after the eggs are all laid up and they can feed them and just if you forget about it because this is the problem that i've had in the past the drones can emerge if you've forgotten and you use that uh, green comb as part of your integrated pest management but then you forget and they all emerge all you did was leave them in the hive but this is where it ties into this question today so for those of you who put them in the drone cage and follow Dr. Zach Lamas's plan, which is not only are we getting the varrodestructor mites to go after them in their pupa state, that's when they're capped over, right? Uh, when they emerge from that cap as an adult drone, they're still going to be contained in this cage. So that leaves them as varrodestructor mite magnets. And what I'm clearing up here is if you've got question marks over your head, don't varrodestructor mites go after the nurse bees that are in the brood for the workers? Well, they do in the absence of drones. So if you've got drones on that frame in that cage, varrodestructor mites that emerge from those worker cells, right, with those that have finished their pupation, right, and so adults are coming out, those varrodestructor mites will seek out and favor two to three day old drones as well as the drone um, pupa state so developing drones now the fun part of this is and why it ties in here is you've got a cage full of drones guess what they all look alike so they're all the same color if there are variables in there they're extremely subtle and not something the casual observer is going to pick out so that lets us know that when you do have drones in your hive and they're distinctive, they're very different. You see some conspicuously, what you highly suspect would be Italian drones. You know, they're, they're blonde, they're orange colored, whatever. Um, you can't, by the way, make 
specific, you know, determinations about the genetics of bees on their appearance alone. But you definitely see that they are not from that queen because we know what her drones look like and they are consistent. So then um, this just means that drones, you know, like you've got no drone cells in this hive. So they were producing no drones on their own. Drones are the freeloaders of your apiary and they're freeloaders of the honeybee world. They show up everywhere. Sometimes they show up in groups, sometimes they show up on themselves and why they get welcomed, I don't know. But uh, in this too, I think you said that they were being ejected. So they're being tossed out. This time of year, if you see a drone at all, it's usually dead on the landing board by now. And uh, so they take them in. So they're the vagabonds of uh, the honeybee world. And so when you see a bunch of different colored drones, they are from its drift. So they've come from other colonies. And then for you to know, if you want to see what your specific queen produces as far as drones go, cage them up, see what happens, consider it integrated pest management. And if you want to do that and make sure, so let's say you don't want to wait until they emerge and then wait for varroa destructor mites to climb onto those young drones that are just maturing off. Because by the way, when they hit their third and fourth day, they're capable of flying out of that hive. So you could be uh, dispersing drone or varroa destructor mites to other hives on the bodies of these young drones, right? So that gives you time to take them out and then put them in something else while you finish your observations on them. Or if you're gonna count mites or whatever you're gonna do. You can mite wash your drones, which was the, you know, the basis of Dr. Lamas's studies were that we should be counting mites on drones, not just the nurse bees. So instead of nurse bees, count drones in spring when there's lots of them. Okay, so that should answer that. I'll put the link, by the way, for question number six to that interview if you want to know more about drones and how they are um, a great way to find ferrodestructor mites. Question number seven, moving on, comes from Keith. It says, I'm a first-year beekeeper. I find, oh, it says, well, let me skip over. I ordered two queens from Bee Weaver, and I live in upstate New York, Albany area. I plan on doing splits in spring, and I have three hives. What would be the best way to utilize the queens without losing them? So for those of you who are listening to this, you might have the same thought in mind. Uh, says I ordered two queens from Bee Weaver. So I'm just going to guess, since they're already ordered, but you haven't installed, that you picked a delivery date sometime in spring for these queens. I like to wait and see what my bees do. I realize that there's pressure. And the reason is, especially the Bee Weaver family, right? They ran out of queens. So they prioritize their queen production and sales commercial keepers, those with big orders and things like that. And then that trickles down to backyard beekeepers who just want to order one or two queens, for example. So I understand the pressure to order in advance, but the other part of that is you can make your own queens with your own splits, as I described in an earlier question. And I do like supporting families like bee weavers, like Daniel Weaver, who does this research, who has treatment-free um, bees that they're they're fighting this fight with genetics alone. So I like to support those organizations and those breeders by buying their queens, right? So, so you've bought them in advance. So now you're committed. You're going to have to create a split when they arrive. So this is why, once again, so for those of you who are keeping backyard bees 
having nucleus-sized hives is going to be very important. And uh, so one of the ways that I would do this, if you're going to make a split and you don't want anything to happen to the queens because you bought them, their prices on queens doubled last year. I don't know about other queen breeders. Uh, you used to be able to get a bee weaver queen for 35 bucks, and now they're 60-something, I believe. I haven't checked their prices, but they ramped right up there. So you spend $65, you get that queen. The last thing you want to do is put her in a hive that doesn't need her and have them kill her, right? So, thanks to Keith, leads me to this is not a queen isolation cage. This is a queen introduction cage. So there's the top. I've talked about it before. I'm going to talk about it again. Why? Because a lot of you are going to face this issue come spring. So you want to, if you don't have them already, great winter project, nucleus hives, right? So I prefer personally five frame deep wooden box hives, real ones, not, not the plastic nucleus, not the, you know, the temporary fold out core flute ones. Go ahead and get wooden beehives, make an insulated cover for it, and uh, consider it a real hive that just happens to have five deep frames in it. The other thing is I have five frame wooden supers for that going up. I have them going through winter right now, and they're looking fantastic because the thermal scans are showing. The clusters are still right between the first and second nuke, which means I have three quarters of a nuke above it and another nuke above that. So I have almost 10 frames of deep frames of resources to get them through the west rest of winter. So they're looking fantastic and they can be a standalone hive, but they are also resource hives or insurance policy hives if you use them the way I'm going to describe right now. So you get this queen in and you've already got your beehives and you want to make splits so that's your plan so you already do need small hives to work with and there are a lot of different configurations there are polystyrene hives there are lysine nukes so there's lots of choices i'm just sharing that i like the wooden hives okay but with this queen introduction cage it is different from a queen isolation cage a queen isolation cage means that you can put your queen in with brood inside a frame and if it's just queen isolating only the queen can't get through it we know that drones can't get through that either because they're larger than the queen but when we're talking about worker brood areas the workers can go through a queen isolation cage and get to the queen take care of her take care of the brood and everything else when it's queen isolation okay that or queen introduction i'm sorry the bars are very narrow and workers cannot get through the bars what they can do is the workers can feed through the bar but if they decide they don't like the queen that you just bought in that costs you a lot of money and you don't want her to die uh, you can isolate her and even keep her in the same hive if you wanted to but you're going to have to pull a frame because uh, these occupy the space of two frames even though it's a single frame queen introduction cage so this lets you get them started or you can pull a bunch of brood out so capped brood would be nice with some nurse bees on it make sure the queen's not there stick them right into this now you have a risk when you do that that those nurse bees are generally the nicest most easygoing bees and they would be the first to accept the queen 
it's your older bees that when you introduce a new queen in there, because sometimes when you get a new queen, she's got attendants with her and uh, they can smell unfamiliar. And if they go in the same hive, they can get attacked and killed, right? So if you pull a frame with nothing but nurse bees on it, so you can shake a bunch of them off if you want to, but you have to be careful if it's capped brood because it has to be kept warm enough for them to emerge and take care of the queen. The other thing is this, by the way, that I'm showing you is better comb. Better comb has nothing in it. Now, if you put um, better comb in here and you put your introduction queen in here, she can lay eggs in that, but there's no bees that will be able to get through the, the bars to feed and nurture those eggs when they hatch on the third day, right? They hatch on the third day, they have to be fed. So, you know, you've got some options here uh, when it comes to that. If you put in brood or capped larvae and things like that with the queen, and then you move her to another location, they're less likely to kill the queen, but you still have some risk, right? So another thing that you can do is put the queen in here, isolate her for three days or four days, and let her go ahead and start laying her eggs. But there again, you have to get her out in three days so that when those eggs hatch that they get fed right away or that you have nurse bees with her right so this keeps the queen protected from being stung to death by any of those that would reject her and uh, this is something that you can use to if you find a queen and you think she's about to swarm and you want to keep her and you just assume that the queens that they're developing are the ones that swarm out, you can take a frame that's got your queen on it in your hive. So this is an option that I'm talking about that's different now. So if you see that they're developing queen cells that looks like they're going to swarm, but you really like the queen that you have and you don't want her to leave or swarm out. So pull a frame of brood that she's on and stick her in this queen cage and you can keep her there and uh, not let her get away and not let them kill her. See, remember, here's the thing. If you're going to keep your queen against the will of the population, right? You've got a queen that is going to be um, forced out of the hive. Okay, so that's what happens when you're going to have a swarm. They're going to start building those swarm cells, which are queen cells. And that means replacing the queen is eminent. So she has to leave the hive. But you like her, you want to keep her, and you're not ready to do a split yet because this happens early in the spring. So you can put her in this queen, let me, queen introduction cage, and that prevents the bees from killing her. They can't get into her to kill her. If you just put that frame with the queen on it in a queen isolation cage, then the workers can still get through and kill her. And you might be thinking, but doesn't the queen, the new queens, don't they kill each other? Don't they kill? Didn't they get in a battle with the existing queen? Isn't that what happens? Well, based on my um, observation hive observations, the workers have actually chased down and killed queens when they did not leave the hive, showing favor for a new queen. So queen introduction just protects the queen. And you're just going to have to work out how long you keep her in there, what you're going to do if you're going to move her around. If you want to introduce her into your nucleus hive, but then pull a frame of brood from several different colonies. If you've got a bunch of them, one frame of brood from all different colonies, then we mix up these pheromones. And then that queen gets accepted pretty darn quick because they're kind of confused with the pheromones that are going on in there. And they're not going to attack and kill her 
Of course, you don't bring any of the queens from those other colonies with you, just their brood and some nurse bees that are on it. So there are a lot of ways to manipulate that, but this is 100% protection for your queen, but you do have to work out how long she can be in here based on what you put in here with her. If she starts laying eggs, those eggs will hatch and die if you don't have nurse bees in here with her. So there's a lot to think about there. But as far as introducing your queen without losing her, inside a frame like this, she comes with her own attendants, you could shake some nurse bees in there. I've not seen young nurse bees attack a queen. It's the older bees that have these, uh, these wax makers and stuff that are guarding queens on their cells. They're the ones that would go after her if she's alien to the hive. And if you protect her here, you could probably get away with keeping her in the same hive, but you have to pull another frame to accommodate this. Two frame spaces. Just food for thought. But that's what, um, this year, that's what I'm doing. Because I had such good luck with these queen isolation cages last year. This let me keep swarms that otherwise might have taken off on me. You get those sketchy swarms that show up. And you can just tell they're kind of outside, they're kind of inside, they haven't decided to move in, and you want to change it up to make sure you still have them. You got a couple choices. One is you can put a queen excluder over the entrance of the hive. Or when you find the queen, and my grandson and I do find the queen, and we just put a frame in here with the queen in it, and this is from a swarm, by the way, and then you just put this lid on and put this in the hive, they have no choice but to stay in the hive that you put them in. So this is a great way to control it. And because I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but it's happened to me where you hived up this fantastic swarm. They're so healthy. It's a prime swarm. It's springtime. They produce the best queens that they left behind. And uh, now you hived them up. And then a day later, that hive is empty. Queen isolation cage. That works for that. So... Queen introduction cage, nothing gets through it. Isolation cage, workers get through it. Queens don't. If you want to know where to get these, uh, Better Bee has both now. The last time I mentioned them, they did not have the isolation cage. Now they do. I'm telling you, if they run out of them, okay, you knew about it. So I get nothing for recommending Better Bee. I don't have any agreement with them. I just mentioned them right now. They're the only place that carries them here in the United States. So if you're planning for spring, manipulation of swarms, producing your own queens, making splits, things like that, these are incredibly helpful. Question number eight. This comes from Deborah. Thought I heard you say that uh, when bees abscond in the fall, it could be because they are queenless and drifting apart. So could that be considered natural hive equalization? Has this been studied? A bit of search and I did not uh, address the reason for absconding. So could not find evidence of that. So here's the thing. Uh, this happens a lot if you go to bee meetings or if you're on bee forums and things like that. I do not have time for bee forums, even my own, I'm sorry to say. And if you're wondering about that, it's called the Way to Bee Fellowship. It's on Facebook. If you Google it, you can join them if you want to talk. I have to be honest, I'm, if I get on there once every three months, you know, it's, so it's a fellowship, it's a self-sustaining fellowship. Um, so great place to go to talk about things if you want to go there. The way to be 
fellowship. So anyway, um, in the fall, oftentimes you'll think you've got a booming colony. They were very productive. Bees are flying, coming and going. Everything's looking great. And then it seems like you just walk up there one day and it's totally empty. Particularly when it starts to get cold and the forages are not flying anymore, you realize you've got an empty colony where you thought you had a really productive colony. And what can happen is, and this happens in the springtime too, uh, the thing of it is, your bees only live so long without a queen. And if there aren't a lot of flying days uh, when the queen dies, or it's one of the worst case scenarios, you get those late season swarms, they fly out, there is no time for them to make a new queen. So what you have are a bunch of bees that are just going to live out their lives, and they're going to be dead, right? Another option, rather than staying inside the hive, uh, especially when there's no brood, is uh, because here's the overlap, right? When the queen dies, uh, you can end up with laying workers. Laying workers don't happen until the colony's been empty of a queen for about 21 days. It takes them that long to be without the queen pheromone for the worker bees to activate their ovaries, for their ovaries to start producing eggs, and for those eggs to be laid by what otherwise would be just workers, and they start laying them on the 22nd day because it's this maturing process and the recognition that there's an absence of a queen pheromone. So when they do that, now they're anchored, right? They're anchored to the hive because on the third day, those eggs hatch and then how they have to be fed. And what are they? They're all drones. And so this is a colony's ditch effort to survive and spread their genetics, right? In the absence of a queen. Now let's change that scenario. And they lost their queen, but suddenly it's cold. And suddenly they're in a normal period where they would be not producing brood anyway. This slows and may even remove these workers' ability to produce drone eggs because they don't have 21 days out for this to happen. And so what they instead start to do is drift away. So the bees are going out foraging and they all eventually become foragers, right? In the absence of a queen. And as they do that, hey, they just start landing on different landing boards right and left until eventually there's nobody left. So it can seem like a sudden event, but what it really is is kind of a trickle out. And then they're just joining up with other colonies and there's no bees to sustain drone brood or anything else. And it can look kind of pitiful. You'll open up the hive maybe in spring or you're pulling it apart and you might see a tiny, tiny cluster of partially emerged drones that are in worker cells. So it's another indicator that they were laying workers, right? Because, uh, a regular queen is going to lay in drone size cells. Laying workers, they just park their eggs all over the place. They're just trying to get some genetics out there on their way out the door. And so what happens is it gets too cold. There aren't enough bees to take care of them. And it's because drones, even in their pupa state, they need to be covered and warmed and, and kept alive. So they don't have to be fed once they're under the pupa cap, right? So then you see these partially emerged ones. So they couldn't even, obviously drones can't get themselves out. They're terrible at it. They need workers to sustain them. So they just kind of die in their cells. And it's a tiny little grouping. So this is why, you know, I speculate that they're just moving on and joining other colonies. And the reason I think that is because there's huge amounts of drift going on in your backyard apiary. And they're just joining up willy-nilly with other bees right and left all the time. That's why I think that. So for Deborah. You can do research, but uh, it's not, I don't, you know, we call it an abscond because they're gone. But I think it's just a trickle out, drift away, you know. Yeah, they're gone, all right. 
But a real abscond is when your whole colony with the queen, they're completely intact and they all just go and they start their life somewhere else. They just don't like where they're living. Their beekeeper oversmokes them all the time. Their beekeeper opens the hive every third day. Their beekeeper pulls them apart or they're overrun with uh, varroa destructor mice and they eventually abscond, they leave, or there's too much of a pesticide residue in the hive. There are a lot of different things that cause bees to depart a hive and uh, leave nothing behind. But at the end of the year, yeah, I think they're just trickling out in the absence of a queen, queenless colony, they'll drift to other colonies that are queen right. Help them out. Question number nine comes from Francine, and it says, uh, in regard to oxalic acid treatments, if you take the queen out of the hive for 16 days until all brood is emerged, one, could you end up with a laying worker? Two, will they accept the queen back with no need to do all the things we do when introducing a new queen? Okay, so for the first part of that, would you end up with a laying worker? Based on my response to the previous question, they need 21 days for that in general to be an issue. Now, there are some entomologists who will say, at, you know, a certain percentage of workers inside your hive could already be a laying worker. In other words, even with a queen present, there's some of them that just act out like that, start producing eggs. And guess what happens? They get policed by the population of nurse bees that are in there. So you wouldn't notice it, but after 21 days, nine times out of 10, you're going to see laying workers. So at the 16th day, um, you don't have one yet, right? And then they can suppress that again before they're fully developed and fully in production as far as drone eggs go. With the queen coming back, they suppress that, their hormones are done, and they don't produce eggs then. So um, you would not end up with a laying worker with the 16 days. The other part is if you bring the queen back, she is closely related to them. She's genetically connected to them. And she's coming back with a strong pheromone. So in other words, when you bring the queen back, this is kind of like combining colonies of bees, right? If you uh, combine thousands of bees with a hive and uh, you bring a bunch of frames of, of brood and everything else and you push them all together, there's very little, if any, fighting going on. And the reason is it's such a massive introduction. So there's so much pheromone coming in with the queen that's one thing, it's overwhelming and they tend not to fight. So even when combining colonies, queenless colony with a queen right colony, we put that newsprint in between. Now, there's some discussion about whether the newsprint's even essential because what you've done is you've brought thousands of bees in and you introduce them on top of an existing hive and they're just workers and boom, they're all, they join together really fast anyway. They chew the paper up, they get it out of the way. I think they all move down to the bottom box within 24 hours anyway. So I think, I know I'm talking about two different things, combining of a colony that's queenless with one that's queen right. They accept that pretty darn quick. Uh, the other part is returning a queen that you took away. So those are her offspring, right? So those are her genetics. They'll recognize and accept her. Um, when you talk about the stress comes in and the potential for losing your queen really comes in, when you buy a queen in a queen cage with a couple of attendants and you install that into a hive, that she's not related to. That's when they have a tendency, if there's any chance that there's another queen there, or if you have really established laying workers, that uh, they will start to attack that newly introduced queen. And that's where the queen introduction cage would be valuable.
So then we talk about, um, that's it, they'll accept her when she's their genetics and she comes in with a whole frame. Another option for doing that too, when you're trying to introduce a new queen, if you've got other colonies that are booming that are doing really well, you can pull a frame of nurse bees at the time that you're going to introduce this new queen and replace a frame and take a frame of nurse bees or brood or whatever drawn comb you have from that colony and mix it into the next colony that you pulled them from. And when you introduce those with the install of the new queen, there's an influx of pheromone and everything else along with her that can help with introduction. But I realized that one of the reasons you might be buying in a new queen is because you have no queen. So now you have to um, introduce her and do the best you can to keep her alive while they spread her pheromone through direct contact. So the 16 days, the answer is no, not a problem. Bringing your queens back, never been a problem for me. So they're familiar, they accept her right away. They're queenless, they don't wanna be queenless. They're anxious to accept her back. Plus she's coming with brood workers, nurse bees and everything else. It's a pretty friendly takeover. They're happy to have her. Question number 10. This is from Robert from Hedgesville, West Virginia. It says, I've been researching your long lang and thinking about building two for next year swarms. My local mentor has voiced concerns that the bees would have trouble moving horizontally from frame to frame without breaking cluster. Could you talk on how the bees overwinter in a hive that they can't move vertically as a cluster through? Thanks. So yeah, um, here's the thing, horizontal hives, even top bar hives, by the way, are making it through winters, you know, where it's cold. So the fact that whether or not they would move horizontally through the hive in wintertime to the resources, that's well established. So it just happens year after year, uh, people are doing it. I did have problems with my bees in my long Langstroth hive uh, the first year. There's a lot of air movement going on over the cover boards. I did not insulate very well over those cover boards, cover boards. And then uh, the bees may have also been challenged with mites. They could have other things going on. But what I will say is, yes, bees do better in a vertical cavity. Now the question is, if they're in a horizontal format, which the long Langstroth hive, frame after frame after frame, this is very important. Size the hive to the cluster of bees you have going into winter. In a horizontal hive, this is very easy. The reason it's easy is because everything's horizontal. All you're doing is pulling the frames of honey that you don't need. Like for example, my long Langstroth this year had way more honey than my bees needed. So I had to pull a bunch out and then you move your follower board in to condense the hive. That hive also has no supplemental feeding on it. They have so many resources. Now there is something that I want you to do. Uh, at least I want you to try it. Uh, the thing that I changed is I insulated it. Double bubble. Where was this 10 years ago for me? I realize people have been using it forever. I'm just slow. I put this as a gasket around all the mating surfaces where the lid closes. So now I have that gasket. I took a full sheet of this and covered all of my covered boards with it. And then I closed over the top of that. What I did there is uh, they have an insulated cover now. Second part of this, how do they move through the frames? Well, for one, they can go over the top of the frames because they have cover boards, the frame, 
which is the backboard of the frame, three-eighths of an inch over that. And then the cover board is above that, so they can move over the top and then down. So they, the cluster gradually moves over the frames as they go. But the other thing I do is I cut corners. So uh, when it comes to the plastic inserts on your frames, of course, they can go right through their own comb if it's nothing but foundationless. But I have them checkerboarded. So what I have is foundationless, foundation, foundationless, foundation. So the plastic foundation that's in there, I've cut the corners, dog-eared them, some people might say. And I've also started cutting a little V-notch, which is about three quarters of an inch down, dead center. I cut that out too. Why? Because it's easy to do before you put your stuff together. And if the bees want to use that to pass through, um, it's there. If they don't like it and they want to close it up, they just close it up with uh, honeycomb, right? So by cutting these notches, the bees can't do that on their own. So they can't cut through acorn frame or whatever the company is that you use for your, but for, for that particular hive, it's heavy wax acorn frames notched. And so they'll leave a tiny opening so they can pass through that. And then that cluster, like a little soccer ball, they move horizontally just fine through the hive. And uh, then in spring, of course, they migrate back towards the entrance. So it's very interesting. But yeah, they do move uh, horizontally. They don't benefit from the heat capsule in the same way that they do with a vertical hive. So when it gets to that, my very best wintering hives, which kind of doesn't make sense, those are my nucleus hives. They have the warmest insulated cover area. So that little heat capsule forms up there because there's no top venting. So it, it starts to blur as winter goes along because I've got this thermal glow where the cluster is. And as I mentioned earlier on already today, they're between the first and the second. So if there's two nuke boxes, they're right at the joint. They're clustered right there. And then so this then there's kind of a cool down area, so the blue areas, and then the thermal shot, there's a warm area at the top. Now, either that's trapped, stagnant, warm air, or my cluster's divided. I suspect it's just air that's encapsulated because it can't vent out. But they'll gradually move up and that will all join and become one big warm blob. But it's because it's this narrow vertical chamber, which somehow is probably very close to what it would have in a tree and that makes perfect sense so these tall narrow chambers thermally are much easier for the bees but it doesn't mean they can't make it horizontally and i realize that for some people if it weren't for horizontal hives they couldn't keep bees they simply cannot lift those heavy boxes even a medium super full of honey is very heavy so the five frames are more manageable but they're still lifting they're heavy and uh, this can be hard for people because I realize that beekeeping comes to a lot of people when they hit a time in their life when they have a lot of leisure time on their hands and uh, you can be elderly. You know, it's great for kids. Um, my grandson, who just turned eight, is uh, he wants Langstraw style hives. That's what he chooses. That's what he wants to have. I really wish he would pick a massive heavy-duty horizontal Langstroth hive with hydraulic, you know, for the cover so that it hydraulically lifts up and it's easy because then all he has to do is walk up there with his step stool and get up at the height of the cover boards and he can pull every board one by one. He can move frames over and carefully lift them one by one. He can put them on a frame rack that's built right into the cover of the hive. It is the most convenient configuration 
for anyone who has any physical limitations, either because they're young and little or they're old or they've got arthritis in their hands and fingers and things like that. And uh, so horizontal hives are in my future. I mean, I realize I don't look very old, but it would shock people to know that I'm over 30. But um, there'll come a time when I just can't lift heavy things. When that occurs, there's going to be two hives for me. The observation hives, which I'm never going to be rid of. And then I will go horizontal hives because they're manageable at any fitness level, at any age level. So there you go. But they absolutely work. Uh, the key is insulation, the full length over the top of all of your hives. Because now when they create that heat capsule, instead of it being in the Langstroth square, right? Or the Langstroth, you know, that little capped area. Uh, it spreads out through the whole length of your hive. And this is why I mentioned at the beginning of my response, condense that hive down and get rid of all the extra honey frames that they will not be consuming through winter because we've reduced the amount of space that that warm air, that warm capsule will have to spread out over. Because if you've got a long Langstroth hive, you can, you can build those any size. And mine's a big one. Mine's five feet long. And so what happens is um, if I left all those frames down at the other end, because it seems logical, right? Why not have more capped honey available to them if they need it? And if they don't need it, you just take it off in spring. Well, the problem is that in the wintertime, they're only going to be warm in the area of the cluster. And so what happens over here is if we get these hot days and these cold nights and these warm mornings, which are coming right up, look what's going to happen on Christmas Day. It's going to be in the 50s. It's probably going to hit 60 then that means that we will have the dew point occurring on the surface of the capped honeycomb over there. And that means that the bees are not caring for that. The bees are caring for themselves on the frames that they're currently involved with. And because we're horizontal instead of vertical, the dew point is going to be achieved on that stored honey. We're in a vertical hive, it would not happen. The dew point occurs below the cluster or at the lower third of the cluster. So that's one of the challenges of that. So you have to overcome that with more insulation and making sure you're not keeping more honey in there than the bees are going to use. So there's that. Cut corners, condense the hive, follower board, insulate the top underneath the cover of your long lang. And I love long langs because you can make those things out of concrete if you wanted to. Because once they're built, build them in place. I think somebody was saying that uh, I get stories, of course, because we have the prints. The prints are available to you for free. Those prints are starting points. You can make it exactly the way it is, or you can make uh, them bigger, heavier, thinner, whatever you decide to do. It's a starting point that shows you what's worked. The thing is, uh, because they're static, because they're never going to go anywhere, you can build that hive as heavy and as thick and as robust as you want it to be. That thing sat out there in the middle of winter with 60 plus mile an hour wind gusts and went nowhere and it's not even tied down. It looks like a coffin. Okay. So that's what I would like my grandson to have. Just saying. So the next part here, this is question number 11. This is the last question of the day. Comes from Charlie Brewster Mass. Last week he commented on and reinforced the notion that hives should be tipped forward a bit to allow condensation and moisture to run out the front of the entrance. So it's also snow to run off the front and everything else, right? Uh, 
Well, having followed your hive setups for years, all my eight hives have slatted racks and screened bottom boards. So tipping them forward might cause moisture to pool on the top front of the slatted rack. That then would, it seems, require the hive to be tipped back like the flow hive. Okay, let me get a slatted rack because this is what we're talking about. This is a slatted rack. So this is what we're talking about. This is the front of your slatted rack. And notice that it has a solid piece up here. And these slats line up with the frames inside your hive. So you have your bottom board, slatted rack, brood box, and that's what we're talking about for the purposes of this question. So now I've encouraged people to tip their hives slightly forward, and that's for runoff. It is also very important because more for solid bottom boards, if you don't tilt your hive forward slightly, a lot of condensation, remember, these hives that I have here, so if you're following my configuration specifically, there's no upper venting, there's no upper entrance, there's only the landing board entrance, which is down here. So I want this condensation that comes down to the bottom to come to the front, and you'll see that it, there'll be damp edges on the front because it is a lot of water, especially when we have these really big temperature swings going from night to day and so on. So when it's tipped forward, the concern here, as I best understand it is that the condensation could come down the wall, land on this, and then be at the front. Okay, let's say that happened. I don't see that as a problem at all. First of all, the bees, uh, you do end up with a lot of dead bees right on here instead of being dead at the entrance and plugging that up. So I have done spring inspections and found dead bees piled up right on top of this and then found the bottom board underneath clean. So this isn't something that I just started doing, so it has not presented itself as a problem. That's the good news. The other part is, based on the question, there's a screened bottom board underneath, so condensation is actually, if condensation drips down and builds up on the bottom board, it's going through the screen and hopefully into a tray. So then when it does that, we can remove that water easily. So there is no ponding or no pooling of water on the bottom board. So the other thing is, if we look at the profile of this, where's your cluster? You know, your cluster is going to be up here somewhere. And the condensation is going to form on the sidewalls. So the amount of condensation that runs down the interior sidewall of your hive that ends up potentially trapped on this landing board, when you consider the overall interior wall space in that hive, it's very small. In other words, I've never pulled one of these off and seen evidence that there was a lot of moisture pooling here, right? So I don't think it's that big a problem. The other thing is the bees need some moisture. So the landing board thing running out the front, very important. And with the nucleus hives in particular, if they're not tilted forward, you'll see, cause some of them, they have bottom boards on them and you'll see that the bottom boards are wet and you can see where the moisture line starts three or four inches back across the front and so on. So you get an idea of how much moisture there is inside, tilted forward, out it goes. If you've got screened bottom boards, uh, you almost don't need to tilt it, but it does help. Uh, keep in mind too, there's a benefit to having your entrances and your landing boards facing south or south by southeast. And it's almost like some people make it a point to say, it doesn't matter what direction your landing board faces. It actually, depending on where you live, makes a big difference in that. 
Because the other thing is, uh, even on the front of this hive, when you get that sunshine on the southern side of that, where is it warming? It's warming the front. So there again, the dew point is achieved on the side walls further back, which means the condensation falls down further back and not on that slatted rack front landing board or wind block. It, it provides a number of functions there. Now, for those of you who have never seen a slatted rack, and you're thinking, well, I need a slatted rack. You didn't tell me that. Um, it's a nice to have item. It's not a critical item. I have uh, a hole in the back with a thumb screw and that's in case we ever need to give it oxalic acid vaporization. Then that means the oxalic acid vapor would be blown in right between the frames. And it has a lot of practical uses. Is it going to be a huge game changer for your hive and your bees will die if you don't have it? No, but it is convenient. They're nice to have. They provide some utility. It does cut down on the amount of gusting wind that blows up into your hive. The other advantage that I see, and it's reinforced time and time again, is that if we just have the bottom board there without the slatted rack, and you had your, your frame was coming down to the bottom board, sometimes the queen will not use the bottom inch or so, or these rounded corners, they won't lay all the way down to the bottom of the frame. But with slatted racks present, uh, they do use the entire depth of the frame. So that is an advantage that holds true, that uh, it, the queens will produce brood further down. And in some cases, even they'll attach drone comb under, underneath the slatted rack. So I think it works. I think it's good. And uh, that's it. But if you've got a screen bottom board under there, um, your moisture is going to run out anyway. So the screen or you've got a collection tray, hopefully, that collects that. And you can swap out your trays. It's another thing. Monday comes along. If you're where I am, great time to pull and swap out your trays. So make sure there's no moisture stored down there. So that's it. Now we're on to the extra stuff just for today. So that finishes up our last Friday before Christmas. So I hope you've done all your shopping and everything is great. So Christmas day is coming. And for us, it's gonna be a warm, wet day. And uh, it's gonna be a bee day for me. So for those of you also that didn't get uh, your oxalic acid treatments in, if that's what you do, and you think, you think you've still got some mites out there, I think they're gonna be breaking cluster. You're gonna see a lot of bees flying. So it's an opportunity to, uh, probably one of your last opportunities to really hit them before the brood starts coming back in. I don't know how mild the rest of the winter is gonna be, but if you do oxalic acid vaporization, this is an opportunity if you've missed that window of opportunity. So inspect for mites, uh, check for mice, by the way, because there's the other thing, if you've got an entrance that you've noticed now that it's been chewed by mice and you think there might be a mouse in the hive, uh, guess when they're gonna get out of the hive, when the bees are flying. So coming up again, depending on where you are, if you're getting these warm days, mice are nocturnal. However, uh, they'll leave the hive if the bees are getting around because the bees are gonna sting that mouse and get it out of there. So this is a chance to replace your entrance reducer and put in a 3 eighths of an inch high entrance reducer. Once he's out, you don't wanna trap mice in. Clear the dead bees out, great opportunity for that. Great time for observation. It'd be interesting, it's gonna amaze me if there's any pollen coming in. I don't know why that would be the case or where it would come from. But uh, the other thing is, check your storage areas where you've got your bee equipment, where you've got your frames, where you've got your beeswax stored. Inspect those places for rodents. 
If you suspect that you have mice or rodents inside your storage buildings, look into trapping those out. And there are options. If you don't want to kill mice, you don't have to. You can do live traps. There's something called the Dizzy Dunker. D-I-Z-Z-Y-D-U-N-K-E-R. It's a bucket trap. You can collect them alive in that. And then you can feed wildlife with them if you want to. Or you can uh, package them up and freeze them after you kill them, of course. You can freeze them and uh, donate them to reptile owners and people that are rehabbing wildlife. So it doesn't have to just die and go into the trash. You can actually feed them back. Uh, if you want to know more about uh, some of the risks you're facing when it comes to digging out mouse nests and finding a mouse inside your stored equipment and realizing that you're dealing with mouse droppings and a nest and the urine and waste material from those mice, your risks actually might be pretty bad. So I'm going to put a link down in the video description to my recent interview with a small mammal biologist who also deals with diseases and pathogens associated with wildlife. And I really hope that you'll take the time to watch and listen and think about your own health when you're dealing with uh, moving your equipment around in storage when you find out that mice have been in there. Also, there's a B-Smart Designs cleaning tool that I meant to bring with me. They're like $4 a piece and it helps you reach in the back and help your bees clear out the dead bees there. Uh, inspect your hive alignments always always when you're walking around make sure that there are no new gaps that things haven't shifted look at the level make sure your stuff's tied down if you got storms coming nobody wants to get out there when it's you know 13 degrees and 30 40 mile an hour wind gusts it's miserable for you and your bees so um, consider wrapping any gaps and things like that if they've shifted on you and uh, that's pretty much it you can go and look for the cleansing flights and stuff like that Another thing that's changed um, the last Friday of the month, so that's next Friday. This, by the way, is the first full day of winter. Happy first full day of winter to you all. Um, what's going to happen next Friday, the last Friday of every month, is going to be a live Q&A. So, in other words, I will take the questions just as they were submitted today, just like today, and I'm going to read them and go over my responses but the difference is that you will have the comment section off to the side and you can ask questions. So I'll stay on. The scheduled time will be from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, United States. It doesn't mean it won't go from 4 to 6. If there's a lot of people with a lot of questions, then we'll just keep it going probably. But uh, so every last Friday of the month, my Q&As will be live now. So we're going to do that. And that's because we did a consensus poll and found out that that's what people wanted. So it seemed pretty good. So I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and everything else. I hope that where you are, everything is going well. And that uh, you get a chance to spend some time with your bees. And, of course, with your family. And that you get lots of new bee toys. So thanks for watching. I hope you enjoy the rest of this Christmas weekend. Thanks again.